Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we have set aside this time and we are focusing deliberately our minds and centering our thinking to hear what the Holy Spirit might say to us as we consider this portion of the Bible. We often pray that you would speak to us, and we pray that you would do that again tonight. But not only speak to us, but then work in us and do your work through us. We want the delight of being your tool, being in your hands, knowing that we're affecting your will every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It wasn't too long ago that Guinness Book of World Records stated that the oldest man alive then was 118 years old. But at the same time, Parade Magazine claimed that Arthur Reed was the oldest man alive, an American, age 123. That's what the article said. Arthur Reed, age at that time 123. That's not the most astonishing thing. Well, actually, maybe it is. But here's some facts about Arthur Reed. Arthur Reed married his third wife at age 92. He'd outlive them all. He was still going on five-mile walks at age 100, riding his bicycle up until age 110, and still working, he said, at age 116. Somebody asked him the secret to his long life, and he simply said, they made me out of good dirt. It is Paul the Apostle who writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Physical exercise has some value, but spiritual exercise is much more important, for it promises a reward in both this life and the next. How is your spiritual workout program? Those disciplines after conversion that would cause you to grow in Christ. We want to look again at the life of Saul of Tarsus. We left him last time on the Damascus Road. He was lying on his back, repenting. And now we're going to see what happens after that and the exercises spiritually that are into his life. You have to admit that for Saul of Tarsus, getting converted being transformed to follow Jesus Christ. It was the last thing he expected. He was going to Damascus. He didn't sign up to be converted. It took him completely by surprise. And reading Saul of Tarsus' conversion reminds me a little bit of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a hardcore atheistic professor at Cambridge University, and he said God snuck up on him. And in his own words, He was surprised by joy. C.S. Lewis, in speaking of his conversion, wrote these words. 
I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom. I was the most reluctant convert in all the world. Well, this evening, what I'd like to cover in Acts chapter 9, we're going to take a little more territory here, more verses, is to look at four spiritual exercises that happened to Saul of Tarsus that he engaged in after this Damascus Road experience. And I'm calling this message Calisthenics for New Converts. We're going to see him tonight on his knees praying, on a team partnering, on his feet preaching, and finally on the run fleeing from his persecutors. Something to note before we jump in. We must never be totally satisfied with conversion. We're glad for it. We look toward it. We pray for it. But that's just the beginning. For the grace that brings new life is the same grace that brings continual growth and change. And by the way, that's God's plan is to save a person, but then do more, isn't it? Because, you know, if it wasn't, if God's plan was merely to convert people, you know what that would mean? That would mean that as soon as you are converted, God would take you off this earth and bounce you right into heaven. Can you imagine that? You come to Christ, you kill over dead. There'd be some very colorful altar calls, wouldn't they? Undertakers at every service. It'd be like sort of like a spiritual monopoly game. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just, boom, directly into heaven. It doesn't work that way, however. God saves you. You're converted. You're changed. You're a child of God. At that moment, you trust in Christ. But then, that beginning takes you on a process of growth where God works in you continually, changing you continually. And hopefully, he works through you to touch other lives. Well, tonight, beginning in verse 10, actually, we're going to start in verse 8. This is the first glimpse we get of Saul of Tarsus after his conversion to Christ. This is the first time we see him praying. This is the first time we see him connecting with other believers in a meaningful way. It's the first time we see him preaching. And we notice that the tables will be turned. Rather than him being the one that persecutes, he will be the one on the receiving end of that persecution. Let's look at the first. He is on his knees praying. Let's pick it up around verse 8. Then Saul arose from the ground. Remember, he was knocked off, and he was praying, he was talking to the Lord. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. It's a good thing to say when God talks to you. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. It almost goes without saying that Saul of Tarsus at this moment was still in a state of shock. He was stunned. He was letting it all sink in. 
Sort of like a person after an accident. They're disoriented. I remember when I was age 13 and I was traveling with my parents through Nevada. And we got in a head-on collision. The guy in the other lane on the other side fell asleep at the wheel, crossed over and around a mountain curb, hit us head-on. Everyone in our car survived. I was the least injured, and I was just mulling around the roadside, completely delirious. I didn't know what struck me. I didn't know yet what happened. I was bewildered. Those three days for Saul of Tarsus were revolutionary. He's rethinking everything. You you have to understand that everything he had come to believe up to this point is now being challenged. His worldview is being challenged. His concept of God is being challenged. His entire reading and meaning of the Old Testament is being challenged. His messianic hope is also being challenged. And to top it off, he can't see a thing physically. He's blinded. Which means there are no physical distractions in his purview. He's completely blinded, which would help him to center his thoughts on what God is trying to get through to him. I heard about a young boy at a church service who, at the altar call, it seemed he took the invitation very seriously. You know, the preacher said, with every head bowed and every eye closed. And then he gave his altar call, and the young boy walked down very slowly, with his eyes closed and his head bowed, and he finally made it to the front. Couldn't see a thing. Something struck me in my reading this week. He was blinded. He was alone for three days. There's only one other three-day period that is of equal importance in the history of the world. And that is the three days before Jesus' resurrection. This is sort of like a a resurrection for this Saul of Tarsus. And maybe he was equating that during this time period. Notice Jesus' description to Ananias of Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he is praying. Behold, he's praying. You go, wait a minute. Uh, This guy prayed all his life. Saul said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He grew up learning to pray. Every morning, Saul of Tarsus would wake up, and twice daily, he would recite this Shema. We've told you about that. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he would continue with three portions of Scripture that were recited right before nine in the morning and right before nine in the evening. On top of that, Saul of Tarsus would pray a a recited prayer called the Shmonesre, which means the 18 in Hebrew. 18 prayers said once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening. So what does this mean, this description? Ananias, go see Saul of Tarsus, for check it out, he's praying. It's because, though he grew up praying, reciting things, he's really praying now. There was a difference. There's a difference with all of the prayers he learned growing up and this kind of communication to the Lord. In fact, could it be, I believe it could, 
that Saul of Tarsus, being a Pharisee, was one of those Pharisees that Jesus spoke about when he said, They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. See, this praying is different. These are not repeated phrases that he grew up reciting. This is more like what David said in Psalm 130, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. That's this kind of praying. You remember the first prayers that you offered to God after you came to know Christ when you really were born again? You remember how different especially if you grew up in a church and you grew up religiously, you remember those first hours and days of communicating to God? How fresh, how new, how different? I do. I grew up praying by reciting things. I grew up religiously, superficially, sacramentally. I grew up rattling off prayers into the atmosphere. Just not even thinking about them, just saying them over and over again. But then it was different. Communication was very different. I can't also help but notice a contrast between what we just read and verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, And Saul, still breathing out threats and murder. And remember we said he's breathing in and breathing out. That's what the word means. So here's a guy whose very life breath was a vendetta against these Christians Now he's breathing the air of heaven. Communication with God. Very, very different breaths. What kind of prayers? No doubt these were prayers of repentance, especially over the death of Stephen. No doubt these were prayers of praise. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your son to me. And no doubt these were prayers of surrender. I give up, Lord. Alan Redpath used to say, before we can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we have to first pray, Lord, my kingdom go. This is Saul of Tarsus letting go of his kingdom, letting go of his position, letting go of all of those religious experiences that were so dear to him. He's on his knees praying. The second spiritual exercise, we'll move right along, is he is on a team partnering. Now we see him joining another group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. The Lord told him, go get Saul of Tarsus. He's praying. The Lord continues by saying to Ananias, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. God set it all up for him. Coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. In other words, go for it. He's expecting you. And Ananias answered, Lord... I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, 
And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Before he was alone in private prayer, now he is with other disciples in Damascus. He's now joined a team that will mark his life for the rest of his life. Ananias is Saul of Tarsus' first experience at Christian fellowship. I have long thought that Ananias, mentioned here, is one of those unsung heroes of the Bible. One of those unsung heroes of church history. His name appears here, but he didn't write any New Testament book. He didn't heal anybody. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. Uh, He didn't preach any notable sermon, but he did something very important. He reached out in encouraging fellowship to Saul of Tarsus and welcomed him in the church. Notice what he said, verse 17. He called him not Rabbi Saul, but Brother Saul. Ooh, how encouraging. That was music to his ears. Here's a guy who was an enemy of the early church, trying to persecute them, arrest them, perhaps even kill them. And Ananias, who knows the history. In fact, he protests a little bit, doesn't he? Now he puts out his hand and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me to you. Now, I cannot blame Ananias for arguing with the Lord here. I know we make a big deal out of it sometimes. If he's really the Lord, you don't argue with him. That's true. But you've got to understand that Ananias knew all about this guy. And he just wants to make sure that it's the Lord speaking. Maybe he thinks this Saul guy is, is going to try to come into the synagogue and play some kind of trick on them. I think Ananias had the same feeling that that missionary had who was out wherever his mission station was, and he was preaching to cannibals, he got very uncomfortable as one cannibal just had his arms folded and just looked at him and stared at him. And the missionary said, What are you looking at? The cannibal said, Dinner. I think Ananias felt as uncomfortable in the presence of Saul of Tarsus. Not only that, but the message that Ananias had to give to Saul was a bit iffy, wasn't it? I mean, how would you like to go tell your persecutor, hey, the Lord wanted me to tell you that he's called you as an apostle and you're going to suffer a whole lot. That's part of the message that he had to bring. Now bear with me here. I want you to notice an interesting pattern. You find it all throughout the scripture. Here's the pattern. Rather than the Lord Jesus presenting the gospel to him on the Damascus road, Ananias is going to further his instruction. It's interesting that on the Damascus road, he just said, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. What do you want me to do? There was a surrender. But there was a whole lot he didn't know. Now, Jesus didn't say, Okay, Now that I got your attention, Saul of Tarsus, let me tell you a few things about my divinity, about my plan, about my messiahship. He just tells them to go into the city, and there will be a guy named Ananias who will tell him the rest of the story. Now there's a pattern right there. Rather than God audibly giving people the gospel or audibly speaking to people about their Christian growth, he sends people to do his bidding. It was Philip who went to an Ethiopian eunuch 
Because God said, go join yourself to that chariot. And he read the scripture from Isaiah, led him to faith in Christ. It was Stephen who in the synagogue was preaching when Saul of Tarsus was there hearing the message. And now Ananias is putting all of these dots together. Here's my point. Never underestimate the power of one person being brought to Christ. And the ripple effect that that person can have. One person being brought to Christ. The seed that you sow. The message that you share. And what can happen from just extending your hand to another person. One of my favorite stories about that begins April 21st, 1855. A Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball was pacing outside of a shoe store in Chicago because one of his Sunday school students was working as a salesman inside the shoe store. And he was going back and forth. Should I go in there and talk to him about Jesus or should I not? He did. And he led that young man to Christ. That young man was Dwight Lyman Moody who became pastor of Moody Church, named after him, of course, but also one of the greatest evangelists of his era. Dwight L. Moody, in his worldwide ministry, he preached to thousands. But one time when he was preaching, a man by the name of F.B. Meyer was sitting in the audience who was so stirred by Dwight L. Moody, he thought, you know what, I'm going to go into the ministry full-time. F.B. Meyer went into the ministry full-time. And one day he was preaching. And a college student by the name of Wilbur Chapman was there. And at that service he gave his life to Christ. And Wilbur Chapman happened to work for the YMCA and hired a young baseball player, a professional baseball player named Billy Sunday, whom through his ministry came to Christ. Billy Sunday was invited by businessmen in Charlotte, North Carolina to hold a crusade. He couldn't make it. Somebody else took his place, a man by the name of Mordecai Ham. And during one of those meetings, when Mordecai Ham was preaching, a tall, lanky young man walked forward and gave his life to Christ, named Billy Graham. And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) That's the pattern we find in the Bible. One person reaches out and connects somebody. And fruit happens. In verse 17, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he is baptized. And also in verse 18, he is strengthened. Verse 22, he increased in strength. I'm showing you all these things because you notice that he goes from private prayer with the Lord to a corporate partnership with God's people. It's not just, I have my own personal, private little relationship with God. He joins himself with other believers. And because of that, he grows. Because of that, he is strengthened. Christian, your spiritual strength is directly proportional to two things. Devotions and connections. Devotions, your time with God. Your daily devotions, your prayer, your Bible study, where you make meaningful connection with your Creator. But, you don't stop there. After devotions comes the connections with God's people. Meaningful connections, where you are able to share into their life, and they're also able to speak into your life. 
We've often said Christianity is a team sport. It's a contact sport. You need to make contact, meaningful contact with other believers. I'm afraid that sometimes we confuse personal relationship with private relationship. We make a huge issue. Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? And sometimes we hear that and we think it means private relationship with Christ. There is no such thing. Every relationship that you or I or anyone has with Christ, there is a mutual accountability and connection with the body of Christ. Here's my question. Are you a strong Christian? Would you consider yourself a strong believer? If not, if your strength is waning, it could be that these are the two areas that need to be shored up. Devotions, connections. Saul of Tarsus made both. Let's look at a third now. He's on his feet preaching. Look at verse 20. Immediately, notice that, immediately, he prayed, He's with believers. And then immediately he preached the Christ, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah, in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed. And they said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, folks, this is not what Saul of Tarsus signed up for when he took his trip to Damascus. Number one, on his agenda, arrest Christians. Number two, on his agenda, bind Christians. Number three on his agenda, put Christians in jail. Now, Saul of Tarsus is in the synagogues preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Try, just try, stretch yourself a little bit. Imagine being Jewish and sitting in the synagogue service on that Sabbath when Saul of Tarsus walked in. I'll tell you what, you'd get sweaty palms. You go, oh no, that guy's here. I know what he wants. And then he gets up, and you think, "Uh, here it is. He's going to rope us all up. But rather, with strong conviction, he preaches that Jesus is the Christ. It says he did it immediately. You know why? Once he discovered the truth, and once he was strengthened with other believers, he couldn't keep it inside. You can't keep good news to yourself if you really understand and have been nurtured that it's good news. It's sort of like shaking a Coke bottle. Remember doing that? Or now a Coke can. You shake it up and... Got so much pressure it goes off. I heard a story about a group of prospectors searching for gold. They were up in Bannock, Montana, which at that time was the capital of the state. They went out one time to do a search party for gold up in the mountains. On their way disaster occurred. Several people died because of cold, because of disease. They were robbed by bandits. They were left destitute with nothing. And they went back to Bannock, Montana with their heads hung low, but they camped by a riverbed, a creek. 
And as they were just sort of hanging around, getting a little bit of refreshment, one of the guys broke open a rock and he said to his friends, you know, I think there may be gold right here in this little creek. And they mined that afternoon, got $12 worth of gold. They mined the next day, got $50 more worth of gold. In those days, that was big money. They went back to Bannock, Montana, and they vowed to each other, we won't breathe this to a soul. We'll resupply ourselves and we'll go back out. Deal? Deal, they said. On the day they were ready to leave for their second expedition, there were 300 other men in Bannock, Montana, going with them. Who told them? Answer, nobody. The looks on their faces betrayed them. They came back gleaming and beaming, and people thought, we know what's up. And they followed. It's interesting to note that from the very beginning, Saul felt the urgency to preach the gospel message. He wasn't a professional, seminary-trained Christian preacher. He was a Jewish rabbi who had come now to believe instantly Jesus is the Messiah. Spent a little time with believers. And he felt that urge, I've got to tell as many people as I can. Somebody once said, the height of selfishness is when you're content to go to heaven alone. Saul couldn't tolerate that. In fact, later on, he'll write something to that effect. He will exclaim in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. So we begin with Saul on his back repenting. And then Saul on his knees praying. And then Saul joining other Christians partnering. And now Saul on his feet and he's preaching. His private devotions, his partnering with other Christians, now readied him for a public mission. Now, that same principle applies to every one of us. This is the reason you don't die when you're converted. This is the reason you're not instantly transported to heaven at an altar call. The first two exercises, private devotion, connecting with other believers, makes you ready for the third one. Share it with as many people as you can. God works in us, now listen, so that... God might work through us. You know, so often we go, Oh, Lord, do a work in me. Do a work in me. I want to experience you more. I want to worship you more. I want to feel you more. Cool. Great. But after that, because of that, it should ready us for the third, and that is this public platform. Back in 1963, it took the world all of about two hours to hear about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Two hours. Several years later, in 1999, it took the world two minutes to hear about the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. when he crashed his plane in the Atlantic Ocean. Two hours, 63, 1999, two minutes. Now, folks, it's been 2,000 years and half the world doesn't know about Jesus Christ in the gospel message. You say, well, that's a high statistic. Okay, let's say a fourth. Let's say a tenth. There's a huge group of people who've never yet heard the gospel. 
This may be the hardest of all the spiritual calisthenics. Would you agree? It's easy to privately talk to God and worship Him and pray and and get into the Word. It's then easy to be with other believers who are going to encourage you and nourish you and disciple you. But this third spiritual exercise, this third calisthenic is perhaps the hardest of all. One researcher I read this week said, quote, The typical church believer will die without leading a single person to a life-saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Close quote. I don't share that with you so you'll walk away feeling really bad and guilty tonight. But rather, with the thought, the hope, that some of you are going to go, Okay, I've heard enough of this stuff. I'm going to try it. I'm going to step out and I'm going to say something this week to somebody. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a go. You've heard it. A church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. It's true about in, uh, uh, single individual believers. A believer who does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. Paul was not a fossil. He refused to become one. Let's look at the fourth. And this is the result of the third. He is on the run, fleeing. Verse 23. Now after many days, and we'll describe more of what that means next time. After many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. Why were the Jews, he was a Jewish rabbi, wanting to kill Saul? Because in their view, he turned He defected. He's one of them messianic believers. Their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Talk about a guy like a man without a country. The Jews persecute him. The believers are apprehensive of him. He's sort of in this in-between state. The Jews want to kill him. The Christian goes, I don't trust this guy. Very difficult position to be in. Years ago, I was in New York City, and I was at a friend's church. He has a church in Manhattan. And uh, I was uh, given a Bible study. It was a midweek service. And I noticed one man who was taking notes the whole time I was speaking. I thought, either this guy is writing a book, has nothing to do with his service, or this guy is taking more notes than I've ever seen anyone in any of my messages. Just writing everything down. He just seemed to have such a hunger. And that's what he was doing, taking notes. So I asked the pastor afterwards, I said, Mike, who is this guy? He smiled and goes, that's John DeLorean. I said, John DeLorean, the guy who made like the DeLorean car? You know, it was in Back to the Future. Because that's the same John DeLorean. And you may remember he was put in jail because of the charges that cocaine was put in the glove boxes of those cars and the big snafu, and he was sent to jail. He got out of jail. In jail, he had given his life to Christ, and he tried to join himself to the churches. But he said, the churches around here are very skittish about this guy. And so John DeLorean was like this man without a country, and I had a great time afterwards talking to him. Hunger. That's Saul of Tarsus. Well, the tables have been turned for Saul. Saul was the hunter, the persecutor. Now he's the hunted. 
He is being persecuted by other Jewish people. By the way, that's exactly what Ananias predicted. Verse 16, Go tell Saul, said Jesus, how many things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. You may remember your initial baptism into salvation. That is, you came to Christ, you went to your family, and you told them, Hey, I've become a Christian. And they thought, Whoa, 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 whoa. They thought you were crazy. You went to your friends. They thought you were crazier. And maybe even church people didn't trust you. You were in that precarious, weird position. They didn't know if you were for real or not. I heard a story about a man who was having problems with his wife, so he went to a pastor for counseling. The pastor said, look, you know your wife. You know what she likes. Here's the cure for all of your ills in your marriage. Think of everything she would love you to do and be and just start putting some of those things into practice. He thought, okay, I can do that. He gave it some thought. He came back in a couple of weeks to that same pastor and he said, Pastor, it was horrible. I did exactly what you said. It was horrible. He said, tell me what happened. He goes, okay, usually after work I come home sweaty, dirty. I I come in the back door, I go to the refrigerator, I grab a drink and I sit on the couch and I watch television till dinner time. On one particular day I thought, she wouldn't like that. I, I should rethink my tact. So he said, what I did is I showered at work, put on a shirt and a tie, bought her flowers. Instead of going to the back door, I came to the front door and I rang the doorbell. She opened the door, saw me standing there with a smile, clean flowers, and she burst out crying. I said, honey, what's wrong? She said, well, first of all, your son, Billy, broke his arm. I took him to the hospital today. They put a cast on him. As soon as I get back home from that cast, your mother calls and says she's coming over to spend three weeks with us. So I do all the laundry to get everything ready. The washing machine broke. Now there's water all over the floor. And now you have to come home drunk. That poor lady just couldn't believe that her husband was that transformed. He's not for real. I imagine people in that synagogue that day thought, this Saul guy is not for real. And at Jerusalem, no, we don't want him with us. We heard about him. A man without a country. Well, these are Saul of Tarsus' post-conversion activities. And we understand that when we come to Christ, that's not the end. It's just the beginning of a process. God is interested in the long term. Salvation of a soul is a miracle of a moment. But the transformation of a life into a man of God or a woman of God is a lifelong process. But all of these post-conversion calisthenics or activities will mark the life of Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, for the rest of his life. He will always be a man of prayer in the Word. He will always be a person who capitalizes on making commitments with the body of Christ. He will always be a preacher of the Gospel. And because of that, he will be a target. So, here's the lineup. You spend time with the Lord privately. You make connections with the body of Christ corporately. That will prepare you to get on your feet publicly and share with the world their need for Christ. But when you do that, you will be a target inevitably. Inevitably. You see, 
If you decide tonight, you know, after tonight, I'm going to ask for God's strength. I'm going to start speaking to one person and then another person. I'm going to bring people to church. I'm going to tell them about Christ. I'm going to get serious about this Christian lifestyle. Don't expect the devil and all the demons in hell to give you a standing ovation for that attitude. They're going to go, oh, really? Let me at him. Let me at her. Which means, you do all these things, you'll be in good shape. These are good, solid exercises of continual change for all of us. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.